This is uh, what we call one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. If you look at Luke chapter 24, I'll begin reading in verse 28. Um, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. This uh, 24 chapter of Luke begins, and I skipped over it, but it begins with what we call the first Easter morning. Jesus had been crucified on Friday. His body had been taken down from the cross. It had been put in the tomb. Now it is the first day of the week. It is what we call Sunday, and the women bring spices to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. They find that the stone has been rolled away, and not only that, but the body of Jesus is gone. Luke tells us while they are standing there perplexed that two angels come near. They come near them and ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. So they, they leave the tomb. They return to the 11 waiting disciples, but the disciples don't believe them. Several hours later, this happens. Two of the followers of Christ are walking from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. It's a seven-mile walk. Now, I think I've read that we walk at an average of about four miles an hour. So seven miles, long walk for us, not so much for them. Uh, but I figured this out. It's the distance from here to about where Carlisle Place is, out on Zebulon Road. And they're discussing, the two of them are discussing the events of the previous days, what had happened. And a man begins to walk with them. Nothing odd about that. They don't really pay particular attention to it. He, nothing unusual there anyway. As they're walking, he, he asks them, uh, what are they discussing? And they are amazed that he doesn't seem to know. Uh, that he's not heard the, the news about the, the death of Jesus. And that was major regional news of that weekend. And it's like everyone would have known about it. Uh, it would have been like a few days after the earthquake in Japan, someone saying, if we had mentioned it, saying, what are you talking about? It's like, you don't, haven't you heard anyone say anything about this? So they tell him the whole sad story. And they, they don't recognize him. He's still unrecognized. And he begins to speak to them, and he tells them that the real cause of their trouble is that they had been, quote, foolish and slow of heart in understanding the prophets. Because if they had understood the prophets, if they had understood the prophecies from our Old Testament scriptures, then they would have known what had to happen, that the Christ had to suffer 
before entering into the fullness of glory. And then it tells us here, basically, he gives them a lesson in the Old Testament as they are walking along. And now we come to verse 28, which we just read. And everything changes because they invite him to stay. Um, That was customary. It was not safe to travel after dark. Uh, So it was customary hospitality to invite this stranger to stay with them. Now, what always puzzled me about this is the latter part of verse 28 when it says, Jesus acted as if he were going further. And it puzzled me because was he pretending that he was going to keep walking and they're forced to beg him to stay? In J.B. Phillips' paraphrase, he says that he gave the impression that he meant to go on farther, as though he really did not intend to go farther, but he just wanted them to think that. My point is this, and I really believe this. I think without the invitation, Jesus would have kept on going. I think he really was going to walk further. In fact, verse 29 said they urged him strongly, stay, please, don't keep going, stay with us this evening, we will eat. You can continue to travel in the morning. But that phrase, they urged him strongly, there's like at least one other place, and there aren't many places in the Bible that use that, and it's from Acts chapter 16 and the conversion of Lydia. It said, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She urged us until we did. So they they are twisting his arm. And once again, my point is, without the invitation, I think Jesus would have kept on going. You remember the hymn, well, of course you know, the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And it says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Y'all remember that? Da, 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 da. I used to, I couldn't stand that verse. I thought it made God sound weak where meek souls will receive him still. The dear Christ enters in. When I grew up in Campus Crusade for Christ in junior high and high school, we would hear so many guest speakers, and always there would be an invitation at the end of our meeting. And I I don't know how many times I've heard, and you've probably heard it. Maybe you've said it. They say that they urge people to receive Christ. And then this sentence would be stated, God is a gentleman. He never goes in where he is uninvited. That rubbed me the wrong way. I thought that sounds trite, and it portrays God as weak and impotent and totally at our mercy. But I think I was wrong. And I, th- I think here if they had not invited him to stay, he would not have stayed. And if we don't recognize him, and if we don't believe in him, and if we don't, as scriptures say, you know, receive him, Uh, as our Savior, then he's not our Savior. Now, for those who question how all this fits in with the preordination of God, the foreordination of God, none of that ever eliminates contingency or does away with human freedom. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, 
When John 1 says he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, enough on that. They, they give this invitation, and it gives way to recognition. Verse 30 tells us how they've, they've urged him to stay. He does so. They do what we would do if we had just made a seven-mile walk. They want something to eat. <laughs> so they offer him the privilege of being the host. This was the normal beginning of a Jewish meal to give formal thanks to God at the breaking of bread. And verse 31 says, at that moment, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. It does not say they opened their eyes. Their eyes were opened by someone else. Maybe it was the sight of the nail marks. Maybe it was the way they heard him pray. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. What we do know is at that moment, God chose at that precise time to make clear that this was his son and they were in the presence of the risen Lord Christ. That's what their eyes were open to at that very moment. Now talk about anticlimactic. As soon as they recognize him, what happens? He's gone. <laughs> There's no reason for him to be there any longer. The whole reason for this visit was for them to know that he was alive. I mean, wouldn't this be kind of a disappointment, you know, as soon as everything's building up to this, as soon as you recognize him, he's gone, just when everything began to make sense? So in verse 32, they ask a, a, a key question. I love this phrase. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us? What was it that made their hearts burn? It tells us he had opened the scriptures to them. He opened the scriptures to us. Now, I'm, I'm a preacher. John Kinzer is a preacher. I don't know if there are any other preachers in the room. But when I sit under the preaching of God's word... I long for my heart to be touched, to be stirred, to burn with enthusiasm for God and his word. I'm not talking about critiquing someone else's sermons. I'm not talking about saying that was a great presentation or wasn't that interesting material that was said or maybe that was a funny story. I long for my heart to burn when the scriptures are taught. And I have known that. How many here have known that? If you've known it, you're never satisfied with anything else. I've not always known it. When I come to the listening of the Bible with that kind of expectation, it's amazing how your heart can be stirred. Um, but when I come as a casual listener or as an uninvolved person, if I come to daydream or to sleep or to plan my week mentally in my head while the the word is being preached, there's little chance of my heart burning within me. So let's look at this carefully. We may think, yeah, but it was Jesus speaking to them. Yeah, it was. And he was the master teacher, obviously. But what he opened to them is what we opened the scriptures. That's what he opened to them, what we have here. I would say this, and I know this sounds off the subject, but I think if you will pray sincerely... For everyone who preaches from the pulpit to you or your family, then those same sermons will have far greater impact on your heart and you may be affected in ways you have never known. Alistair Begg 
uh, y'all listen to him probably on the radio. I think he preached at the dedication of, of the Houston Lake Church. Uh, he's pastored the uh, Parkside Church in Cincinnati for almost 30 years now. Uh, Alistair Begg grew up in Scotland. And a few years ago, right before Easter, I heard him tell this story. And uh, I said, I've got to, I, I, went, I went and downloaded the sermon and I wrote out what I'm going to, to tell you about. So I'm going to paraphrase what, what he told about. He, he told of a, a young man who showed up at Parkside Church. He had a strong Scottish accent, and he had on a leather jacket. And as he met Alistair Begg after the service, and they began to talk since they were from the same uh, towns of Glasgow. And this young man had left his home in the highlands of Scotland. He had gone down to Glasgow to work for Babcock and Wilcox. And he had come from a very strong Christian family. And though somewhat like a prodigal, when he left his home, he was also beginning to leave the faith. Or at least he had strayed very, very far from it. And so when he came to the city and had started his career, he began to hang out in places and meet people and do things young single adults do. And he met this young woman to whom he was attracted. Uh, As time went by, they, they formed an affection for one another. Uh, And it became apparent that they really loved each other and they could see marriage as a real possibility. But there were lots of problems and there were lots of issues. And perhaps the largest one was that his own conscience would not let him alone. He felt guilty. Now here's why. He knew that he was not only far from his father's house physically, from his earthly dad, but he was also far from his heavenly father. And this girl was a Roman Catholic. And he, <laughs> he came from a bastion of reformed Presbyterianism in the highlands of Scotland, and there was no way either sets of parents could cope with this. He thought he understood the gospel. She knew she did not. She knew she wasn't right with God. So they tried to work up some kind of middle road, middle of the road approach to appease both sets of parents. So on Sunday mornings, they would go to the Roman Catholic Church, and then on Sunday evenings, they would go to St. George's Tron and hear Eric Alexander, the world-renowned preacher, preach. And so they said Sunday mornings, Roman Catholic, short homily, out the door. It was all they could do to get there in time to be present. But it seemed to do something for her family. It seemed to gain their approval. Then in the evening, they'd go and they would sit and listen to Eric Alexander preach. One evening, they are there at St. George's, and they listen to him preach. And he preaches from the phrase in the book of Acts, Almost you persuade me. That was the word of the Roman official to the apostle Paul. Um, as he dealt with the whole notion of being far from the kingdom of God, and the Roman official says, Paul, almost you persuade me. So they sit and they listen to the sermon. Eric Alexander urges a response, urges the necessity that you have to respond to this. So they leave church after it's over. They go to the nearby bus station to go to their respective apartments. They're not living together. And they've been silent from the time they left the church service as they walked up the street to the bus station. And as they're waiting there, the young man turns to the girl and says, there's something I need to tell you. 
And he said, when Mr. Alexander said those who are not far from the kingdom of God need to trust Christ and receive him, well, tonight I trusted and received him. And the girl said, there's something I need to tell you. I did exactly the same thing. Now, both of these young people were soundly converted. And they stood at that bus stop and they essentially said, were not our hearts within us burning when he opened the scriptures for us? I'm going to tell you a side note that I didn't mention our congregation a few years ago when I told that. Alistair Begg said it was not long after, um, before he met this young man, Eric Alexander had come to preach at Parkside Church. And they were having a conversation and they were talking and, and Eric Alexander told him, said, let me tell you something that's strange to happen to me. said, not long ago I was going to preach on a certain subject on a Sunday night and at the last minute I thought God was telling me to change it and I switched and I preached on, that was the sermon. <laughs> and so when Alistair Begg heard the guy tell that, he, he knew God had spoken to him. This is nothing a man could achieve. I mean, it's not as though we on our own wisdom and intellect can say, okay, I'm going now to open my eyes to this. Sunday after Sunday, I look at people in in services, most of whom I'm acquainted with, many I don't know, I've never met, and I think, what chance is there that any of these people will come to understand and believe this if God does not open their eyes and open their eyes to the Scriptures? There's no chance if God doesn't do that. Okay, uh, last few moments here. How does a person then move from simply knowing to believing? How does a person move like these two disciples from knowing some of these things to believing it? Well, the scriptures is what God uses. Uh, I believe Jesus started early in the Old Testament. He could have gone back to what we refer to as Genesis 3, verse 15, the first promise of the Redeemer. He could have traced that promise through the scriptures. He may have lingered at Genesis chapter 22, which tells the story of Abraham placing his only son on the altar. He might have touched on the Passover and the sacrifices and the tabernacle ceremonies and the Day of Atonement and the serpent in the wilderness, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the prophetic messages of Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. We don't know, but I would assume he did a whole survey of, of prophecies about the coming Messiah. So we move from simply knowing to believing through the scriptures, but also through the Spirit. In verse 31, it said, He opened their eyes. God opened their eyes through the teaching of the truth. The Spirit teaches by the Holy Scriptures. And faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I've mentioned to our congregation something that's pretty applicable, especially after this past weekend. Because the problem with these guys was not in their heads, it was in their hearts, these two disciples. But... You've probably read, like I have, that more tornadoes hit the Midwest than hit the South each year. But more Southerners die from tornadoes than Midwesterners. (laughs) Now, those who did that study say it's because Southerners tend to be fatalistic about tornadoes. And we don't seek shelter because we think if your number's up, your number's up whereas Midwesterners are more aggressive about heeding the warnings. We don't act on the knowledge we have. Now, one Sunday morning, I mentioned that, and after church, somebody came up and jokingly said, hey, I like that what you said about, uh, you know, Southerners. 
I said, where are y'all headed? He said, we're headed down to St. Simons. Tornadoes, we had storm forecast for the afternoon, possible tornadoes. This, and this was a Sunday at noon, and there were forecasts that afternoon. I said, you're driving down there? He said, yeah, nothing's going to happen. And he did not see. He was saying exactly what, what this, this study said. We don't act on the knowledge we have. Well, last of all, there's a celebration. They go back to Jerusalem. They're energized by the discovery they immediately go back the seven miles that they had just finished. They re- quickly return to Jerusalem. They find the 11. You kind of feel sorry for these guys. They've just gone 14 miles there and back. And they tell the news, and what did the, what, what the others say to them? Well, we already knew. <laughs> you know, we, we already know. You know, oh, rats, you thought you were going to break this story, and they, they already knew. I was reading an application for a person wanting to become a U.S. citizen. <laughs> Let's see how many of these you can get. All right. Here's the application asks, if you're 18 years of age, have you been a permanent resident for five years or more? Can you read and write and speak basic English? Can you pass a civics test? And many other things. Will you take the oath of allegiance to the United States? Will you support the U.S. Constitution? Now, here's some of the questions from the civics test. Okay, y'all ready? If we think this is easy, if you think this is a fog the mirror test, it isn't. How many stripes are there on the U.S. flag? How many? Okay. Who is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court today? In what year was the Constitution written? Which of these is guaranteed by the First Amendment? Freedom of the press, press, right to bear arms, right to happiness, right to trial by jury. How many Supreme Court justices are there? What are the first ten amendments to the Constitution called? When was the Declaration of Independence adopted? Which of the following amendments to the Constitution does not address or guarantee voting rights? The 19th, the 24th, the 15th, the 7th, or the 9th? What are the 13 original states? What do the stripes on the U.S. flag mean? What is the introduction to the Constitution called? Who selects the Supreme Court justices? How many representatives are there in Congress? Why did the pilgrims come to America? Who has the power to declare war? Which of these contains three rights or freedoms guaranteed by the Bill of Rights? I mean, that's just a small sample. But what if the test added, have you had a living encounter with George Washington? What if it took knowing George Washington personally to be an American? See, to be a Christian requires not just knowing the answers to certain certain questions, not just having an intellectual grasp of who God is and our need and and who Jesus is, it means having a living encounter with Jesus Christ. And the only thing that makes that possible is the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the uh, bad news that you've made clear to us of our need, of our sin, of your righteousness and the need to punish that, and the good news that Christ was the Redeemer, that he not only died He was raised where he still lives today, and there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we trust in that, and may our trust be in that. In his name we pray. Amen.